Hello, my name is Ben. And I'm Brian. And we're your hosts of the Too Vague Podcast this week. One word, two hosts, stories, trivia, and of course, video games. Joining me today, Brian from the My Weekly Mixtape Podcast. Brian, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, man. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. I really enjoy your show. And so I just wanted to have you on so we could talk a little bit about the word this week, mixtape. Before we get started, can you just introduce yourself, tell people a little bit about what you do, what you're focused on? Sure. Obviously, the My Weekly Mixtape podcast is one of my biggest sources of enjoyment. It is my podcast that I started at the beginning of this year. It is something that is 40-something years in the making because I have been making mixtapes since I was a child and something about making mixtapes when you're a child, and I'm sure we're going to get into this a little bit more, but I'll keep it brief here. When you were making mixtapes growing up with actual physical, tangible cassettes and listening to the radio and Mm -hmm. recording from CD to cassette, you were doing things in real time. So these were calculated decisions versus now when you drag 50 or 100 songs into a playlist and click shuffle, you kind of remove the thought process out of music listening. And I'm trying to bring that back. And my show is basically a focus on curating mixtapes with like-minded people that are into the thought process behind music Mm -hmm. as well as the artists who make the music themselves i've been blessed enough to have some guests on to be able to do a mixtape with the people that are responsible for the music so a fan plus band member dynamic which i thought was absolutely fascinating that's really cool i just caught recently the billy joel episode which I thought was really amazing. I I really did like that. I appreciate that. That's all because of Liberty. I know my role when I have somebody that can tell stories the way Liberty DeVito can. Yeah. And Liberty was the drummer for Billy Joel from Turnstiles all the way through the River of Dreams and then into the early 2000s. He is one of the best drummers on the planet. I basically just asked him about songs and got out of the way because the stories he told blew my mind for almost an hour and a half. Oh, yeah. I could have sat there for three hours and just listened to the man talk. He's just <laughs> a treasure trove of musical information. And uh, that episode for me will be always be a highlight for me now moving forward. Yeah. You know, I just want to also say that I enjoy the diversity that you have as far as the show. You've got fans. You've got musicians. You've got people who have their own podcasts all cooperating you and a guest making a mixtape which is not always something that we did back in the day when we made mixtapes we didn't have a cooperative sort of thing it was usually expressing ourselves through making a mixtape so i really enjoy that too yeah with my friends and this is where i thought your show was very interesting to come on one of the things we did when i was much younger let's say 9 10 11 12 My buddies and I would get together early afternoon, like two or three o'clock, they'd come over. Usually if we were having like a sleepover or something, we would sit in the basement with my dubber, the two cassette deck Mm -hmm. connected to my stereo. And we would sit there and be like, all right, what do we want to listen to tonight? And we would curate a Mm mixtape. And then that evening... We would break out the Atari 2600, 7800, (laughs) Nintendo, the NES system, and we would play video games all night long until my parents basically were getting up for breakfast. 
listening to that mixtape and playing video games. So to me, it is a, a very monumentally fun part of my youth. I was going to turn the tables on you here as far as what does the word mixtape mean to you? Like you ask your guests on your show, but unless you have something to add, we can just move on to the origin of the word. Yeah, the word mixtape to me basically is expression because the artists in the songs themselves are expressing the music that they've recorded. But when you take different artists and combine them together, you're taking their art and creating your own art with it. To one person, two songs might not work well back to back, but to another person, you're telling a story. Yeah. To me, that is the most absolutely fascinating part of a mixtape. Whereas when you make a playlist, you dragged on 50 songs and you hit shuffle. Yeah, there's there might be a theme that is going throughout the songs you chose, like a genre or a sound or a style of music. But when you put songs back to back, specifically to be played in that order, especially if you were making a mixtape for, let's say, a girl you fancied in high school, you really took the time to put the proper songs because if you put the wrong songs, you might give the person the wrong impression. Mm -hmm. And that was your shot. So you really had to put that thought into it. It's something that's missing now. And I'm trying to bring that thought process back yeah. through the podcast's discussions. That's wonderful. I really, I 100% support that. And you, I know you have a Patreon. When we wrap up the show, we'll mention that too. So if people want to contribute, I wanted to also say that so far you've had topics like best drummers. Uh, the guy from Lit was on. And you're talking about lit songs, right? Mm -hmm. And then that is correct. One of the things that I think I'd like to hear going forward is something where it's more of a nebulous concept where it's like, this is a mixtape for driving to Chicago or taking a road trip or, or something like that. You're thinking about those types of shows in addition to the ones where you're talking about genres and your favorite music of different eras and so on and so forth 1000 percent, yes yeah i always envision that being a part of the show but to start things out because i'm only at this point of our recording 15 episodes in mm -hmm. i wanted to get people used to the format yeah the style and the flow of the program right but we are actually going to be recording in the next couple of weeks the songs of a summer barbecue and cookout episode. Now, nice. I know you're immediately going to think, oh, songs you play at a summer barbecue or cookout. No, we're talking about the food you eat at a summer barbecue or cookout in song. So think Cheeseburger in Paradise by Jimmy Buffett. Think Led Zeppelin's Hot Dog that style of mixtape. So musically, it might make zero sense and it might be hysterically funny, or we might be able to find a theme musically and edibly, so to speak. <laughs> so we will find out. It unfolds as we're recording. We don't pre-plan anything. We don't share our song choices. So it could go really great or it could go really bad. And knock on wood, <laughs> I have not had any complete clusters. Yeah for episodes where things just fell off the rails. There's been some pivots and some musical 180s, as I like to call them, yeah. where there's just nowhere to go at a certain song and you kind of have to do a palate cleanser musically, and that does happen. But we've never had an episode where there wasn't some kind of theme yeah. that was going through the music, through the conversation. So I've been very lucky about that. Because if it got to the point where 
it was just, I name a song, the other person names a song, I name a song. It's boring. We're just naming songs. The challenge is telling a story from the songs that I bring to the table and that you bring to the table. So I always tell guests, if we're doing a topic, even though you only have 10 songs to pick, you best bring a bank of 30 or 40 songs because there's a lot of different directions the musical landscape can unfold. And that's what we try to do in the episode. Yeah. One of my last episodes I recorded, our guest had 70 songs, which was mind blowing to me. Wait till you have me on the show because that's going to be a lot of songs. <laughs> Probably going to be flipping through a, a, an encyclopedia of new wave 80s music and i am yes very much looking forward to that yeah it's exciting i think the new wave genre is something also that i want to teach the younger viewers about you know what i mean it's it or Mm -hmm. viewers i say viewers but you know what i mean (laughs) listeners yeah mom said i had a face for radio so i i just do audio only (laughs) i use that joke all the time on the show yes (laughs) the nature of building something together also is you don't know exactly where it's going to go. You have an idea about the theme, but you don't really know. And that's kind of exciting. You know, like I said, something from my childhood that I have a lot of emotional connections to. One of the things that I used to do, though, being a more visual arts kind of person was in addition to making the tape and making the mix, what I would do is I would make a custom jacket for for the cassette as well oh so that's another sort of additional thing that i used to do with my mixtapes create something visually that kind of expressed what was in the cassette audio wise interesting the nature of building this thing that means something to you and means something to someone else is is art that's what it is period in a sense. 100% and and to bounce off what you said I never did the custom artwork but one of my buddies actually took a cassette apart like screws out of the cassette and took the dark part of the inside of the clear cassette out and mm-hmm. put his own paper inside the cassette nice of artwork so the cassette was actually a one-of-a-kind visual yeah it was genius it was a really really cool thing to do i never went that far neither did i i only went as far as the jacket and i would put a little creative writing in there as well or put a note in there or something another thing that i used to do was a christmas gift you know i would expose someone the the focus was here's some stuff i think you're really gonna love and here is a gift certificate to, well, I don't know, Sam Goody or whatever <laughs> whatever there was around Tower Records back in the day. So that was another thing that mixtapes were kind of exposing people who meant a lot to you to various forms of music, which they may or may not have been exposed to previously. So that was kind of, you know, a cool thing about the mixtape. I agree. And I also want to say that the, I think that's a, an extremely thoughtful gift to give somebody if you do that now if i make a playlist and i email it to you and you're like oh okay yeah okay that's 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 nice and and really most people just kind of be like oh yeah i'll check that out when i have time yeah but when you made somebody a mixtape this person realizes that you spent hours even in a 90 minute mixtape because you had to rewind and fast forward the Mm -hmm. song or wait for it to come on the radio pause the tape and grab the other tape creating something for them with them in mind yep. that alone like i can make you a playlist right now 
in 10 seconds of 100 songs, it doesn't feel as important. When I say I spent hours recording this for you, that says like this whole time I was thinking about you right? and what songs I think you would enjoy. And to me, that is a very personal thing to do for somebody. It's making them art, even though you didn't record the songs. It's a form of expression of self and also a, a form of expression of love for music, for the person you're giving it to, for the love of art, I guess. With the invention of the compact disc, it made making mixtapes so much more efficient. There was still the thought process that you had to put in there and the expression, but being able to listen to the CD first and then put it on and record it, that was my the way that I used to do it was I wouldn't put the song on until I listened to it first and then I would put it on. So it would be like, okay, this is going to work <laughs> that way. So it was kind of a measure twice, cut once approach, as my grandfather used to say. There you go. I like it. Okay, so really quick, let's, you know, really quick. This is us talking, so that's an impossibility. But anyway, <laughs> talking about what we're passionate about. <laughs> the mixtape. So let's uh, go over the word mixtape, a noun. It is a compilation of favorite pieces of music, typically by different artists, recorded onto a cassette tape or other medium by an individual. So surprising no one, according to the Google Books Ngram viewer, usage in print started in the late 60s, early 70s, as you would imagine it would, or with the invention of the compact cassette tape. The background invented at Philips, which I didn't realize was a Dutch company, in 1963 by Lou Ottens and his team, Originally, this was designed for dictation machines. It wasn't initially thought of as being a, a musical sort of thing. It was for recording dictation. And then, as they got improvements to the actual recording medium, the tape itself, uh, that's when it sort of took off in the mid-70s as a way to provide audio information, be that for a computer, be that for listening, that's where it came from. In case you've been living under a rock, compact cassettes, two miniature spools between magnetically coated polyester tape film, and then the spools are held together with a plastic shell. Do you know the dimensions? No, I don't have them memorized. <laughs> Four inches by 2.5 inches by 0.5 inches. So that is the largest dimension of a cassette tape. And the tape that's used is eighth inch tape, which isn't actually an eighth of an inch, but it's close. Right. That's how they round it. The stereo pairs. Yeah, you're going to one sixteenth split in half. So one thirty second of that tiny little cassette you're looking at is the left channel. And one thirty second is the right channel. And that equals side A. It's insane. The concept that it actually worked and that is why god forbid all it took was a little bit of a ruffle of that tape and you'd get that warbling sound because oh yeah it is it was very very fragile and heat sensitive Mm -hmm. so if it melted and it stretched that's it you kiss that cassette goodbye it was not a durable medium where i have had cds that i have dropped on the concrete and like I don't know, gone skeet shooting with, and somehow they still play the music afterwards. (laughs) 
the method of storage is different with your CDs. Yes. But with cassette tapes, they were they were very fragile. I was going to ask you if you ever in your lifetime had a cassette tape melt on your dashboard. Oh, yeah. I had one melt in the cassette player. Oh, yeah. And let me tell you, <laughs> having to listen to Head Cleaner, which is the worst band of all time, for like an hour to try to get the residue off of that with, and, you know, like sticking the Q-tip, the long wooden topped Q-tip in there to try to get every last piece of the tape off. It was, it was a nightmare. Yeah. Not fun. I've never had that happen to me personally. I've had cassette tapes get stuck in the cassette player back in the old days with my aftermarket stereo for my 1982 tan mercury links when i was in high school <laughs> yes i should point out this didn't actually happen to me in a car stereo this happened to me sitting outside of the park with the sun hitting the boom box oh okay the boom box so it, ne- yeah. it melted on my dashboard but i've also had it melt inside cassette players but this was outside mm-hmm. where the boom box was in direct sunlight yeah. and it actually melted the cassette inside the inside the heads yeah so that did not happen unfortunately in the car which would have made for a great story but that one no it (laughs) it was but i have dealt with the melted cassette inside a cassette deck just not in a car so i apologize for that you don't need to apologize for your personal stories it's not very becoming (laughs) (laughs) but anyway i've had and you mentioned fragile i ended up buying are you familiar with uh living colors vivid album oh most certainly oh yes me too So much so, in fact, that before I actually purchased it on CD, finally, I went through four cassette tapes, one of which was melted, one of which I accidentally dropped in a container of soda at a Bulls game. Don't ask me. Don't ask me how that happened. (laughs) That's random. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that warning written on the back of the cassette? Don't drop into soda at a Bulls game. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's... That's part of the fine print. Damn it, I should have read the warning. <laughs> <laughs> One of them got crushed. It was it was very weird. And I was like, you know what? This is a sign. I need to buy this on CD. So then I bought it on CD eventually. But yeah, cassettes were very fragile, but very convenient. And of course, they had the campaign. You're familiar with the campaign about uh, how home recording is killing music. Oh yes, very much so. I had I have a couple of vinyl records with that yeah. scary looking image on the inside. <laughs> the skull and crossbones, the Jolly Roger sort of thing, or is it a different graphic for records? The cassette tape graphic is one I think you posted on your site once. Yes, that graphic was from an album I owned and I highly disagree with the thought process behind Oh gosh, yeah. That sentiment because i'll tell you right now Mm -hmm. as much as mtv and top 40 radio played a big part of melding my musical shape i could tell you with authority that my friends and my family members that were older than me giving me their mixtapes truly shaped who i am musically oh yeah because these were the songs that were not in heavy MTV rotation and not in top 40. Alternative before alternative. 100%. Kind of thing. But that's one thing I also, I'm very thankful for my parents, more notably my father, for exposing me to, he had a very eclectic sort of love of music. And it went everywhere from Antonio Carlos Jobim, Brazil 66, to stuff like the Talking Heads, 
or David Bowie, his catalog changed a lot over time. And he was always very encouraging of get the albums that you want. So whenever we would go to the record store, it's like whatever you want, even some eyebrow razors like Kiss. My brother and I had probably a half a dozen Kiss albums and we didn't know what Love Gun was about, nor did we care. We just knew that the music was awesome, right? The innuendos went over your head at that point. So you were able to rediscover the songs when the lyrics started making more sense as you got older. Oh yeah, there's that too, right? It, it has a new meaning at that point as well. I was in third grade when you went to Hershey Park. They had those booths you can go into and sing songs that were popular and they would give you a cassette of them. It's kind of like a recordable karaoke booth. Yeah. And I have a recording of me in second or third grade singing Jay Giles band centerfold. Nice. In my mind, the song was just catchy and fun to sing. Mm -hmm. I listen back to it now, hearing myself singing those words. And I think about the innocence that this was just a song. I loved, I had the 45. I loved the music. I love singing along to it. Had no clue what it meant. You go back and you listen, you're like, man, I was singing some kind of, I don't want to say risque, but for, you know, it was, it was innuendo. Yeah, exactly. And, and probably not third grade material, but it, you know, it, no. it's a hell of a song though. I still love that song. Yeah, exactly. You know, the vapors turning Japanese, that song, which is an eyebrow razor, just the song itself these days. <laughs> I don't even think anyone would play that song on national radio in this sort of climate, but there was the rumor, I guess, in grade school going around that, you know, turning Japanese, that is a song about masturbating. And then we would go, no, it couldn't be that. Oh, the time before you could just Google anything and find <laughs> out the answer. Exactly. There were certain things that went around. Like, I'll never forget. This has nothing to do with music. But when I was in college, one of the big drinks mm -hmm. that was really popular across campus was Don't tell Zima. Me Zima. Yes. Zima. Oh, you know, you know. <laughs> but the rumor, there was internet, but there wasn't internet like we have it now. It was just kind of like these single web pages that were like just text. Mm -hmm. There wasn't like actual news and the internet was still budding. Yeah. But the big rumor was that if you drank Zima, it wouldn't show up <laughs> <laughs> on, a on a blood alcohol test, which it was because and I think people came up with that rumor because it didn't have much of a taste to it. Oh, no. It was that Sprite flavor, which might not be as pungent on your breath as a beer or a 40 at the time. So it might not be as obvious, but the alcohol was still in the in the. <laughs> in the bottle and you were thinking that it wouldn't show up on a blood alcohol test like it just made no sense back in my college days that was i would call that in retrospect zima was the the gateway drug of alcohol <laughs> i referred to it as alcoholic fresca you could just taste a little bit but man did it have a punch if you consumed a number of them consecutively oh god yeah i i also one time made the the mistake of trying to add flavor <laughs> to Azima uh. by spicing it up with some Mad Dog 2020. Those don't mix well. That's all I'm going to say about it. <laughs> That's like, and I will not expand on that anymore, but let's just say any headache I still have at 46 years old, I equate to that idea. <laughs> <laughs> it's like an acid flashback, except it's a 
Zima flashback. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's fun. Zima. Another sort of relic of the 90s, I think. Yes, very much so. Let's get off of Zima. <laughs> get off the Zima. <laughs> different episode. Different yeah, episode. Yeah, that's a different episode. <laughs> oh, college. For me, college was another big mixtape making sort of thing. I would go to the McDonald's to study because I didn't want to go to the library and I didn't I wanted to be around people. I would make my little studying mix and so I could sit there and drown out everyone else and listen to my crazy music. What well, crazy music? It was like a lot of the Smiths, a lot of Morrissey, a lot of Echo and the Bunny Men on that guy. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that was the the good old days of making a mixtape for a purpose, personal purpose. This is my studying music. Yeah. And this is my playing video game music. And this is my taking a drive to Six Flags Great America music. That was the mixtape. It is such a great thing to kind of expose the younger generations to. In fact, I don't know if you heard the recording. I posted it on Instagram, the little conversation I had with someone who's a much younger person who basically said, that's a wonderful idea. I think I'm going to start doing that with my playlists, like thinking about instead of just throwing things on to a list. Amaya said, yeah, that's a good idea. Like, yeah, it's been around for a while. <laughs> it's been around for a while. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it's very cool that the younger generation is kind of embracing this. I know that you have kids. Do your kids make mixtapes or do your kids do things that are along that line musically when they make playlists or they have their Spotify playlists that they, you know, that their friends share songs and they just say, Oh, I'll add that to my playlist. And I sometimes will say to my oldest, like where Mm -hmm. I'll just add it where and why see for me with playlists, when a new song comes out, I'm like, Ooh, that's the playlist starter now. So I, and I rearrange the songs based on the new addition to the playlist. Yep. So that way, when you listen to it, and I usually don't make my playlists 500, 1,000 songs long because you never really get to it, and that's too long of a story. I like to keep the playlists anywhere between 25 and 50, so mm-hmm. two, maybe two full cassettes worth, yeah. like a volume one and a volume two all in one shot because that'll give you a nice long five, six-hour car drive, and you could still tell a great story through 50 different songs. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you've made volume one and volume two mixtapes. I've made... A hundred percent, yeah. Yeah, I've totally made those before. I was up to ten on some of the... I think I've even made a three. Oh, Lord, yeah. Because I used to have like these... Because I was always... I was fascinated by radio as a kid, and that's why I went into it. Mm -hmm. To me, that was part of that fascination. So I would have like Radio Jams mixtape, which was actually songs I would record off the radio, but it would be Radio Jams Volume 1, Volume 2, Volume 3. And it would be a snapshot in time because you'd make this tape over the course of, let's say, a week or two recording songs off the radio. Yeah. Two years later, that's a snapshot of what the music scene was two years ago. There's a distinction to be made. There is the popular music of the day, but then also... There are the popular bands with the songs, the deep cuts, if you will, where you're trying to expose someone to the band itself and you're going, you may not like this song that's got major radio airplay, but check out this thing. That sort of thought process I always thought was really cool too with the bands that I really enjoyed. I vividly remember 
when I would make mixes for people, I would always pull deep cuts and I still do it on the show now. Oh yeah. I always like to, even if we're doing the greatest hits of blah, 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 I always drop some deep cuts in because just because a song doesn't get released as a single does not mean it's not their best work. And obviously music is subjective yeah. and people are going to like what they like and listen to what they listen to. And sometimes I feel people just stop on a band after what the radio said. Like even when people, as I grew up had cassettes, they would play the hit and then fast forward to the next hit. I'm like, what are you doing? You just, there's a great song in between those two. Let it play. Yeah. The other thing too, was listening to the entire album the way it was created by the artist. I mean, I also think that back in the days of cassettes and records, of course, they were organizing those tracks to tell a story themselves, right? When you put things on a list, even by a single band, there is a thought process, or at least I'd like to think that there's a thought process of how this is going to impact someone's what they enjoy. Do you think that back in the, you know, the early days of your records that there was thought given to that? Or do you think it was 50-50? Or do you think it maybe it was like some people just threw it on there? What sounds good together? What doesn't? What do you think? I think it depends. I think it's an artist by artist, band by band basis, because I know there's a lot of artists that, and I've talked about it with some that have been on the show where they'll take the album and they'll listen to 500 different sequences of the songs trying to find the right story to tell yeah and then there's bands where you you listen to their album and you just kind of hear a 180 180 180 where they they kind of incorporate so many different styles but it doesn't feel like a cohesive body of work yeah and then you have bands that take it to the level where the songs are meant to be played like a dark side of the moon of a complete body of work Oh, yeah. It's weird to hear songs plucked out of that album and played on the radio because you're expecting the next pivot from the album because it almost sounds like one genuine piece of music. Yeah. So to me, it all depends on the band. Unfortunately, in modern music, I feel like albums have returned to becoming just a bunch of singles because people are going to stream what they want. Yeah. And because of streaming, people do not give the full albums as much of a chance. Yeah. The only plus side to that is the fact that vinyl is resurging and it is kind of forcing the younger people who are in the vinyl to, to go back to the album listen. So hopefully that reinvigorates a conversation for bands to actually take the time to decide the order of the tracks. Because there's been albums I've listened to that I love the album, but sometimes I will literally take and make a playlist on my phone of that album and what I feel is the perfect album sequence. Yeah. It'll elevate my love of that album just by listening to a few songs out of order. Total difference of opinion. Still end up loving the album, but I just feel like, oh my God, this song would have hit so much harder coming out of this. And I have been known to do that. Do you think that that is, I know you that you're a musician. What do you play? I play guitar, bass, and sing. And I, I can keep a beat. I cannot do many roles, but I can keep a beat. And I have jammed on drums with some bands as well. So did your appreciation for music happen first? Or, or like as far as creating or playing music? Or do you think it was 
enjoying other people's music. Where's the timeline for you as far as how that developed? Oh, I was easily falling in love with music first. Music was a part of my life since like my earliest memories. One of my first toys was a record player that I was able to play real albums on and had a little light up bar in the front of it, had a plastic needle, but like a really terrible speaker, but I would play my chipmunks and my Muppet records on it, my Sesame Street 45s. Yep. It wasn't until... I want to say ninth grade when one of my buddies said, hey, dude, I'm starting a band and I need a bass player. And I'm like, yeah, and your point? I don't play an instrument. Yeah, well, this is a good time to ask your dad. Like, maybe maybe he'll buy you a bass and you, you could be in the band. <laughs> I'm like, I could be in a band? Sure, I'll play bass. Like, you know, it was just kind of how I, that sounds like fun, playing music as opposed to listening to it. Yeah. Let's do this. Right. And I fell in love with it. You're doing both, actually. You're playing and you're listening. Exactly. You know, you got to feel the groove and, and kind of follow it that way, I think, when you're playing. I'm not a musician. I connected more with the self-expression in the physical arts as far as displaying things like painting, writing, that kind of thing. And that's what I connected with. But I can definitely appreciate, I appreciate my brother who, you know, learned how to play guitars and learned how to play the bass. In fact, he actually did the the background parts for the Two Vague Podcast theme song. Nice. <laughs> so I sent him whistling and a metronome and then he put in the rest and it was like, okay, well, there we go. Brotherly duo right there. <laughs> Fantastic. Love it. It's so much fun. I mean, you know, I can understand being a musician and if there was a musical instrument let's say i retire in i don't know 10 years like that's going to happen anyway <laughs> but let's say i do maybe i would think about learning an instrument even though you need to put time and effort into it and at this point in my life and previously i feel the urge to express myself in the audio or spoken word or creating actual you know paintings or artwork physically like that as opposed to musical things but it's always been there in the background like I want to kind of play around with it at some point but I've never really thrown myself into it the the only musical instrument I played was the clarinet back when I was younger hey we've all done hot cross buns I get it it's the uh the devil's instrument <laughs> that and the recorder yeah <laughs> oh the recorder man remember music class do they have music class in grade schools anymore oh they still do and they still do the recorder and i've had to sit and listen to hot cross buns practice and as much as i love music i the dog was was putting his paws over his head and i was doing the same <laughs> One of the things I remember was being cast in a grade school production in music class of The Music Man. One of the memorable things. Yeah. Kind of theater nerd sort of stuff. Got my theater cred. We're pretty deep into this. So let's switch over to video games if you don't mind. By all means, let's do it. With this, I kind of wanted to spring something on you here. We did talk about creating like you historically have created mixtapes for playing video games. And as time went on, were you playing things like the PlayStation and the PlayStation 2? Or did you kind of stop playing those things back when you were younger? Probably like Nintendo, Super Nintendo is probably where I would picture you stopping. The last systems that I owned were PlayStation 3. So I did own PlayStation 2, 3, Sega Genesis, all that. 
However, my affinity for games started pivoting to a specific type of game. Oh, okay. The shorter games, meaning either wrestling, Mortal Kombat, Street Fighter, Tekken, games that were just button mashing. You could pick them up and put them down quickly. There wasn't a big narrative. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where I tapped out because I know the narrative games now. I spent so much time podcasting. I'm afraid if I picked up one of those games, I'd fall in love with it and the podcast would die. So I don't want to do that. (laughs) I'm able to strike that balance because video games have been a part of my life just about my entire life. You know, if I were to think of my childhood, I think of mixtapes or music and the arcade. Those are the two things that just naturally pop into my head. If I think about my childhood, music and arcades, and just there's a connection there for me. Yeah. Yeah. For some reason. But I do remember how there was sort of a, the way the industry started to go. I want to say it started with the PlayStation. I mean, when you started getting the PlayStation games, that's when you started being able to tell stories. It wasn't as pixelated. I mean, maybe maybe your Super Nintendo had little stories about Mario and his friends. Sega CD, from what I remember, tried to go down that road. That was a system I had. And oh yeah. They tried in, injecting like video clips to really make you feel like you're in this movie or mm-hmm. cartoons like the game. I've never been more horrible at anything in my life than the game Space Ace. Oh, I don't think I ever made it past five seconds in the arcade. I, I would put a quarter in, and by the time I would hit the first button, they're like, oh, you're dead. Yeah. You lost. And I'm like, I didn't even do anything. I don't understand that game. For the people that are big video gamers, they're probably laughing at me right now, but to me, it was the hardest game to master. Every time I would try to do a move, boom, dead. I was like, oh, okay, sorry. (laughs) The funny thing about that is that game is more about rhythm. So you would think someone who is into music would be able to do that, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm not making fun, but it's just, I, I would say... As far as early rhythm games, I would trace that back to those Laserdisc games of that age. And and Space Ace was definitely one of my favorites. And I think the reason why I didn't get the rhythm part of that game was because, it, you know, some video games would explain how to play before you start. Not Not that one. You put the quarter in, you hit start, and the story starts, and you're just supposed to figure out what the hell to do. So it wasn't until I saw my buddy actually playing the game, it was like, oh, now it makes sense. And it was just one of those ones where every time we'd go to the arcade, there'd always be a line, and I'd get up, I'd put the quarter in, and I I might as well have just said, here, you play for me because I'm going to lose this quarter anyway. (laughs) (laughs) I'll save you, Kimmy. Get me out of here. Boy, I could almost recite all the dialogue. That was another thing that could have actually been... A turning point is a home system that was based off of laser discs, but mm-hmm. it just was too cost prohibitive back in the day. And then when it got to compact discs, well, here we go. We've got this option here and Sega. Actually, I did a show with Nora on the word rating recently. And that show, we talked about a particular Sega CD game that was called Night Trap which was one of the games next to Mortal Kombat that 
precipitated the creation of the ESRB, which is the ranking system we are still using today mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, for video games as a sort of a benchmark for parents. I know you're a parent. I'm a parent to cats, but I don't have to worry about playing video games for them and making sure it's okay for them to do them like stray. Maybe anyway, use the ESRB as a guide, but I don't think that's a substitute for me playing the game before I let my child play the game. I just don't think that that is a substitute. And then at a point they'll get to be an age where they can make that decision themselves. 100%. Yeah. Do your kids play video games? Yeah, they have a Nintendo Switch. So the games that they're playing, though, are Just Dance, Mario Kart. Okay. So those are all games where the family can join in. My wife and I could play with them. I will blow on my nails and brush them against my chest when I say I can win a Just Dance match sitting in my recliner with my feet up. Somehow the rhythm of that... I was able to do the handshakes perfectly <laughs> and uh, they got really upset when I won it sitting down. <laughs> it was just the timing. If Space Ace were to come out now, man, you would be a master. I'd be an ace of space. That was... <laughs> exactly. The other thing too with that game is you had difficulty settings. There were three difficulty settings that you had for this game and all the difficulty settings did was add more complex scenarios that you had to navigate timing wise. Yes. There is one that I remember that's so memorable for me where you and Kimmy are on roller skates and it is this Don Bluth masterpiece of incorporating a three-dimensional sort of, it, it has to have been computer graphics somehow. Don Bluth was the guy who, the art for it, by the okay. way. Space Ace and Dragon's Lair both Don Bluth games. He came from Disney. He also did The Rats of Nim, the movie. It's got a very distinctive style. And a very uh, distinct color palette, especially for a video game. Those games were bright and vivid. Oh, yeah. Very vivid. Mm -hmm. You know, I could talk about those arcade games forever, but let's get into the making our mixtape, if you will. I gave you an assignment to prepare a list of 10 arcade games. Yes, sir. These are ones I'd be pumping quarters into. Excellent. We're going to take the mixtape approach, a patent pending phrase from one Brian of the My Weekly Mixtape, in creating the perfect arcade. So we've got enough space in a room for 10 video games, and we are going to create a video game room of things that We have connections from our childhood. So the arcade games of our youth that we enjoyed and shaped what we enjoyed in video games, that would make sense for you. You kind of went the route of your fighting games, your arcade-inspired quick experiences, and then mine kind of went a different way. It went the direction of the Space Ace telling you a story, the Don Bluth Laserdisc games. Yes. So... Let us start our arcade. You and I, we're going to make bank, man. We're back in the 80s. All right. What are we going to do? Let's kick it over to you, Brian. What do you start out with? What are you putting in there? First game. First game is an easy one for me. It was a made by Konami. It's a wrestling game called The Main Event. Yes. It was an absolute 
ripoff of the WWE at the time. Mm -hmm. It had Conan the Great, which was ripping off Hulk Hogan, Kamikaze Ken, which was ripping off Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, San Antonio Smasher, which was ripping off Coco Beware, Saturn Six was ripping off Demolition, Bigfoot Joe was ripping off King Kong Bundy, and Alan the Empire was ripping off Andre the Giant. I love this game. I first discovered this game when my parents took me on a cruise. I was 10 years old, and there was one rainy day, and I went to the arcade. Mm -hmm. The arcade had like 15 or 20 games in it, and I met a couple dudes or a couple other 10-year-olds, you know, or hanging out with our parents. We decided to just start playing that game together because it had the four players. At one point, we said, okay, let's go meet up with our parents and get some more money. We'll meet back here in an hour. And we spent the entire day in that arcade just pumping quarters in and playing that game. And then our parents came. Every time one set of parents came, they would give us another 10 bucks for quarters. And we probably stayed on that machine. I kid you not. Over the course of one week, we had to have spent at least 20 hours pumping quarters into that game. We had so much fun. That's a good wrestling game. I'm trying to think of other wrestling games that captured. That was back. In 1988 is when the main event came out. It was very cool, but yeah, obviously you could make connections to actual WWE stars. How did they not get sued for that? That's the part that just... Well, there were those concerns. It came out in Japan before. That's In Japan, the main event is known as Ringu no Oja. Back in the arcade game days, mm -hmm. you had localizations that would occur where the game would come out in the country of origin and things would have to be changed in order for it to be released in the u.s right one example is street fighter and i don't know if you know the street fighter story but there is a character who is a boxer named balrog he looks so much like you took mike tyson and you just made it into a character well in japan that character is known as m bison for Mike Bison. <laughs> so they changed the names. The evil character in Japan was Vega, and the character that had these claws, his name was Balrog. So they just did a three-name switch. So the evil character, who is like the boss, M. Bison, in Japan is, is the Mike Tyson character. <laughs> in the U.S., Balrog, and in the U.S., the character that was Balrog is Vega. So it's a very weird sort of thing, but they do that in order not to get sued Yeah, by Mike Tyson because Mike Bison definitely sounds like Mike Tyson. Just enough, yeah. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to follow your main event economy game up with one of my favorite economy games. It's a side-scrolling shooting sort of game called Contra. Oh, yeah. Boy, oh boy, did I spend money on that game back when it came out, and I got really good. And then when I moved out here to Arizona, there was this goth industrial club that had Contra there. I think I've only done it once, but I could play through that entire game on a single quarter. I did that once, maybe twice, but it was a very difficult game, but once you got it down... You know, so I could spend 20 minutes listening to music and playing through that game on a quarter. It was, it was quite, uh, it's, it's one of my favorite games. I really enjoy it. And uh, so that is, that's what I would add to our arcade. Love it. 
And it wasn't until Nintendo you could do the up, up, down, down, left, left, right, right, A, B, A, B, start. So Yes, the Konami code. Yes. I don't know if it's Konami or Konami. I say both. But, but anyway, you know what we're talking about. 100%. Passing it back to you. All right. I am going to go with, I'm a sports guy. I played football in high school and in college. And I'm going to go with the game that took sports and added a little bit of fantasy to it. Okay. And that is NFL Blitz. Oh, nice. First time I played that game, it just when you're when you tackled and you can have the entire team just pile on mm-hmm. and you know like your guys get set on fire and they could take off. It it's not <laughs> real. And there was something about it that sensationalized the game. It wasn't just playing football. There was like this cartoony aspect to it. And as much as I loved my one of my favorite video games of all time is Super Tecmo Bowl. But oh yeah, this okay. took the left right Super Tecmo Bowl and made it north south, but added this layer of nonsense to the game. So I can enjoy playing yes. Super Tecmo Bowl at home, but then still enjoy pumping quarters into NFL Blitz until it came out on the PlayStation. But that to me is is the prime example of what a fun sports arcade game should be. Just t- t- taking a game that you should be outside doing on your own. Oh yeah, and making there a reason to be doing it on a screen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Boy, that's a that's a good that's a good one. And I don't know how I can go a number of ways with following up on this because if we're talking real sports, you know, there is a connection between NFL blitz. I think the success and the reason why they did an NFL blitz started out with NBA jam, <laughs> which was another midway game. And the next, and, and the next so one on another, my list. Oh yeah. NBA jam. Yeah. So, but I wasn't going to pick it because yep. we're only doing five and I figured that was the sports one, but I literally have it written down next. Yeah. 100%. I can go a number of directions as far as sports, but I'm going to follow football. And what I'm going to do with football is there was an Atari game that came out that it was in a, you know, it was a football field, but instead of actual human players, it was robots. And each designed robot had a different way that they, you had your robots that were the thin ones that would be, the ones that would catch, you would have more armored looking robots that were your linemen and you'd have your running backs and your quarterback. This game was called Cyberball. Hmm. And I remember my buddies and I playing Cyberball so much back in the arcade days. Boy, it was so much fun. It was just basically a football field. At the bottom, you had one end zone and the top, you had another end zone. And it was one that you could play against each other you had plays that you could select and it was just a fun football game that wasn't really a football game it was sort of robots a robot football game did you ever see that or ever played it? i have never played that one but now i'm interested to look up some stuff on it because that sounds like it would have been a lot of fun i do not know that one yeah and oddly enough the game takes place in the year 2022 Where's our Cyberball? Where is it? <laughs> the same place where Jaws in 12D was not in 2015, and we didn't have hoverboards either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it has something to do with the supply chain problems we were having. Yeah, I maybe. think that's exactly right. <laughs> that's probably it. 
not enough robot parts. But anyway, so handing it off to you. For my third pick, I'm going to go with one that as soon as I say, you're going to say, wait a minute, I told you it needs to be in an arcade. And, uh, and yes, it is an arcade game. And I'm going to go with uh-huh. Nintendo's Duck Hunt. Oh, yeah. Even though I owned the NES and had Duck Hunt with Super Mario Brothers, anytime I saw it in the arcade, mm-hmm. I still had to pump quarters into it. It's the exact same game. Yep. And I don't know why. There's so, it's, it's one of my favorite Nintendo games of all time. No disrespect to the ducks out there. It was just an addictive game. And I, st- I still love it. So that would be my third. Yes. 1984's light gun shooter. And I remember playing it in the arcade before playing it on the Nintendo. They had a lot of that light technology that they tried to build into the Nintendo Entertainment System. I know my buddy who I used to sleep over at his house had this robot that you could get called Rob. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this Rob robot was did you have the rob robot or did you you know who i'm talking about though yeah i did not but one of my friends did so i was very familiar yeah, with it like gyromite where you had the little you know gyroscopic sort of things that spun and yes but yeah it used the same kind of technology i remember to kind of detect what was on the screen and how it interacted with you and so on and so forth that's a good old school game duck hunt for my game going off of your duck hunt the first game I think of wasn't the most popular game when it came out. And I don't think you'll even know the game itself, but it is a game that Williams put out that's called Turkey Shoot. Turkey Shoot had a crazy sort of backstory where turkeys took over the world. The year is 1989 and mutant turkeys have taken over. <laughs> And so you are one of the chief turkey terminators and you are supposed to make the streets safe by eliminating turkeys and saving the humans. So it's got all these mutant turkeys. There's a helicopter, there are buildings, but it's a shooting game. And it is so ridiculous, but it was so much fun. I'm following Duck Hunt with 1984's Turkey Shoot by Williams. I have played that one. That one is fun. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Great game. Yeah. So ridiculous, too. Oh, 100%. 100%. Following that up, I'm going to bring it a little newer, probably the second newest game on my list. Okay. I'm a musician. I love music. And when you walk up and you see a drum set sitting in front of you with real sticks, it was the MTV Drumscape Drum Simulator. Oh, wow. You would choose a song. They somehow had a mix where the drums were pulled out of the original or they were there very, very quietly. Right. And then you had a kick drum and a hi-hat and the snares and all the different pads and you would play along with the song. So you could play extra fast and just make it sound like noise or you would do your best. So being I had a little bit of drumming ability, that was one of the games where I could be like showing off to my buddies because I actually knew how to play on a real kit. Yeah. And it was just a lot of fun. It was loud. It had the speakers over your head and it was always at the front of the arcade. So a lot of people would gather around if somebody was actually keeping a good beat. So it was kind of a cool way to, I don't want to say show off, but it was like that rock star quote unquote with the rock horns in the air, even though you're, you know, teenagers at an arcade. I never played MTV's drumscape. But I have played from around that time, 
there were some rhythm games that I had played that incorporate using musical things. Like there was a a type of game that was called Beat Mania, which was a turntable. And Mm -hmm, I remember that. And of course you had your Dance Dance Revolution. Yep. Took over at one point. Donkey Konga, you know, for the for the home systems. Oh, Donkey Konga. You had your bongos. Love Donkey Konga. And then, you know, that obviously transformed into like Guitar Hero and Rock Band and Guitar, you know, all those games. Yeah. But I love the musical rhythm games. Those, those have been, Donkey Konga was one of my favorite things to come out for the GameCube, period. Oh, yeah. Did you, uh, you had a Dreamcast, right? No, I had a Sega Genesis and then I went to PlayStation at that point. Okay, gotcha. Because Dreamcast had a game where it was Maracas, Maraca Duels. Do you, you, do you remember this game? No. It was called Samba de Amigo by Sega and it was Maraca Duels. And you had these Maracas that would attach to a little mat that you would stand on. And it would detect the height at which you had the, the maracas. So on the screen, you would either do high shakes, medium shakes, low shake, and then every once in a while, a pose would appear on the screen, and you have to move the maracas into a pose. <laughs> it was pretty crazy, but it was like that for a while was my pickup line was, hey, you want to come over to my house? We can do some maraca duels. <laughs> Is that code for something? No, it's just actual maraca duels. That's what it is. Okay, so let's follow this up. Jeez, drumming games, rhythm games. I can, I don't know if I want to go down that route or do I want to stick with music? Okay, let's stick with music. That's going to be the connection between this MTV's drumscape and the game that I'm going to select, which is a game that I think was the first game that was endorsed by an actual band from back in the day it is called journey the arcade game i sent you a little link have you have you seen journey the arcade game before i have not that was my first journey the arcade game is a game that did you ever play tron tron was a really well-known game right yes and the original tron had four different types of games that you would play before you get to an end screen where you had to do something right mm-hmm. Well, this is the same thing except the band Journey, and it came out in 1983. It coincided with the Escape album around the same time, so it was kind of like they put those both together, and you would have a different game for each member of the band, a little mini game where you had to get your instrument and then go back to your ship in various different ways. Some of them were more shootery. Some of them were like more Donkey Kong jumping up and down over things. It had some variety. It was the first game to use the scanned images of the band members. So their faces were actually in the game, digitized, which was really cool. But another neat thing that the arcade game had was when you reached the end, you got all your instruments, you got back to the ship. The end of that round was you were at a journey concert and you were the bouncer and people would be rushing the stage and you had to block the doors as they were rushing the stage. And there was a cassette tape in the arcade game that actually played live journey music. That's my fourth choice for our personal arcade. I would go to that one first to try out when I walked in. That one sounds absolutely awesome. Yeah. Check out the videos on it. People have done the 
uh, what do they call it? MAME, multiple arcade emulators. People have access oh, to that cool. and they can access this game. But you can find footage on YouTube so you can see it being played and see what it is. But the songs, they did pretty good for 8-bit music. I mean, it was just, it was like, honestly, for me, when I played that in the arcade, the song Chain Reaction. Are you familiar with that song? Of course, yeah. The video game is what got me into that song. It wasn't the album. It was the video game. That was very strange. It was sort of... What a great marketing by them. You know, it was, but it didn't really do super well, unfortunately. People sort of regarded it as a flop, but man, so much fun. To close out the arcade, what is your last game? I'm going to go with a modern one now because when I go to arcades with my kids, this is the game that we end up going to, even though we own it at home. Right. That is Mario Kart, the new version with the actual wheel and you're sitting in the chair and you're kind of engulfed in it and you got the large screens with the buttons and the chair kind of vibrates when you get hit. It's taking a game that playing at home on the Switch is fun but it just makes it feel so much bigger yeah. and so much larger than life. And it's a cute game. The graphics are fun. Obviously, I could play with any age with my daughters, 10, 14. We have no problem when they were younger playing it. It kind of brings my love of all the Nintendo things into play all at once. So that, that's my, my uh, you know, end with something newer. Yeah. You know what? I'm going to, boy, I can end with something newer myself. But I think what I'm going to close this out with, I'm going to stick with the driving theme of the Mario Kart. And there was a game that came out in 1989, the year I graduated high school. Do the math. I don't know if you're familiar with Sega did an airplane game that was called Afterburner. Yes. Where it was you were flying a jet right? Mm -hmm. And then Sega did a number of games. There was one called Space Harrier where you were flying around as a guy shooting things that would come towards you. It was sort of a three-dimensional shooter where objects would come at you. Yes. Tato developed a game back in those days that was a combination of a driving slash shooting game, and it was called Night Striker. Not only did it have a very cool soundtrack, but it had multiple endings. So what you would do is you would choose one of two directions. And then once you've finally gone through all of the levels, which was five, it would just split out like a tree. And you could end up with one of five different endings. And those things were you transformed into a different thing to complete the game. So it had some replayability. But it was a lot of fun and it had a killer soundtrack. So I'm going to close out our arcade with Night Striker by Tato. Fantastic. What a great group of games there. Yep. Our arcade, man. We're going to make bank. Definitely. Bring the kids in. Bring the kids in. (laughs) So let us close out the show. Brian, your final words on the word mixtape for our audience. Well, the first thing I'll say, the final words is like what you like, enjoy what you enjoy, and put some thought into the songs you listen to back to back and why, because it elevates that experience for those songs for you when you put together your own personal narratives through other artists' art. It really becomes a fun experience versus just drag, drop, and hitting random. 
So tell your story through other people's music. That's kind of my final word on that. Yeah. And I would add to that the interpretation part that when you share that with people, you want to create something that sparks something in someone else, right? That makes an impact, not only telling your story, but creating a new story for whoever's listening to that. They have different associations. They'll take it different directions and maybe just exposing them to new stuff is what you want to do. But it's a cascading effect, I think. Definitely. The enjoyment and sharing that enjoyment with folks. 100%. Okay, so let's go ahead and tell them your website. I know you're on the socials, but you can get a lot of that information from the website and tell them a little bit about where to follow your show. And Thank you for that. The main hub for everything My Weekly Mixtape is simply myweeklymixtape.com. You can find all of our episodes. You can search through and kind of pick and choose what you want to listen to. It also has links to all the different places you can listen to us, which is anywhere you find podcasts as well as YouTube. Just search the words My Weekly Mixtape. Same thing with social. If you want to follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, it's all My Weekly Mixtape. And same thing at Patreon. If you're enjoying what you're hearing on the show and you want to support a little bit extra, it's patreon.com forward slash My Weekly Mixtape. Yeah, and it's wonderful, wonderful stuff. And I think the whole idea of having a cooperative creating of the mixtape and then also being able to listen to that mixtape and share it with others from your website that is just amazing yes yes that is so cool thank you so much you're welcome i really appreciate you being here i am looking forward to being on a show of yours if you so desire because boy do i have a lot of things to talk about when it comes to 80s and new wave music oh by all means we're gonna make that happen i thank you for having me and i look forward to the crossover continuing when you come on for a My Weekly Mixtape episode. So thanks again, man. Thanks, Brian. So on that note, my name is Ben. And I'm Brian. And we've been your hosts. Have a wonderful night. Bye.